On. Thank you. Thanks for the introduction. Um, I'm actually glad that you made it to the last workshop. Um, I was about to tweet earlier to bring your beer or wine or whatsoever. So if some of you have followed that uh, advice, uh, enjoy it. Um, so thanks for coming. I'm going to talk uh, maybe for like eight minutes, um, but uh, then I'm going to hand over to Claire um, from First Draft um, to actually do the deep dive into the fact-checking and verification uh, techniques. Um, I'm Isa Sonnfeld. I'm leading uh, the Google News Lab for the German-speaking region, so Germany, Switzerland, and Austria. Um, and I want to introduce the News Lab just really quickly, um, because it also ties into um, what we will hear later. So the News Lab was created um, two years ago, um, and we have the mission to empower and drive innovation in journalism. Um, we want to work with journalists, developers, and entrepreneurs to figure out how to use technology and how to experiment with uh, technology. We focus on four main um, areas. It's trust and verification. Uh, you heard over the past three days, you heard a lot about um, misinformation, disinformation ecosystem. Uh, you heard about trust. You heard about um, truth. Um, so that's one focus area that we uh, really um, are committed to. The second one is data journalism. With Google Trends, we have a powerful tool for data journalists, but also for every other um, person, journalist or not journalist, um, to use Google Trends um, data to analyze what people are searching for. Then third, uh, immersive storytelling, um, everything that is related to 360 and VR, and how to tell stories with this different um, form of storytelling. And then inclusive storytelling, meaning um, we work with um, organizations, NGOs, uh, in order to help empower new voices and um, make sure that new perspectives um, get a stage and get uh, awareness. So we started two years ago um, with the idea of creating one access point um, for journalists to learn about the tools and the services that either every one of you has already on their phone um, or is keen to learn more about. And um, g.co slash newslab is this first um, and foremost access point um, to inform yourself about some of the tools um, that might be useful um, for your daily, daily work or your daily um, news information or news uh, consumption. So talking about advanced search, talking about um, Google Trends and Google Earth, and some of the tools um, are actually being used by journalists, but mainly also fact-checkers. And Claire will um, probably point, um, point out some of them as well. We launched, uh, two years ago, we launched a training center um, because we got the feedback from journalists that um, there are all these tools out there, um, but there's no way to get informed um, very easily and very simple, um, in a very simple way. So we have now over 50 um, online tutorials um, ranging from really basic tutorials to really advanced tutorials on the various tools and services. So g.co slash newslab is um, the, the first access point. Um, 
I already mentioned Google Trends, um, not only in the, um, in the um, related to storytelling, but also related to fact-checking and verification. Google Trends is a tool for those who um, haven't heard about it or haven't used it in the past. Um, Google Trends looks at um, uh, data samples of aggregated and anonymized, um, anonymized uh, search data. So as a journalist or as a normal user, you with Google Trends can understand what are people really interested at the moment in Germany, in Berlin, at a specific point, a specific point in time. Um, and that can help you to first do your research and figure out what are the topics that are at the moment most relevant, but also in some cases use Google Trends as a detection tool um, to, to figure out if there is misinformation or if there are topics um, that people search for because misinformation is being spread over, for example, social networks. So I'm going to show some examples and then I'm going to hand over to Claire. So on the one hand, if you go to google.com slash trends, you can do, for example, comparisons of politicians. So how uh, are people searching for, for certain politicians, um, either in the past seven days or in the past hour? And that, of course, gives you a hint of what people are really, um, are really interested in. Um, of course, we have a big um, state election coming up on Sunday. So um, together with, uh, in this example, Rheinische Post, uh, we looked at the search interest in the running candidates. Um, and we wanted to know what are the topics related to these candidates that people are mostly searching for. So an interesting snapshot of the polls of what people are, are really uh, caring about. Another example, looking at uh, the related searches. So when we analyze Google Trends data, we look at the two to five search sessions that you as a user do, and we can detect what are the related searches or search topics um, in the context of a politician or of a specific um, topic or event. So we did that for some of the candidates. Um, sometimes it's random, sometimes it's funny uh, what, are people, what people are searching for in the context of uh, politicians. It can be very personal um, or it can be very political. We also did something in, uh, in France where we looked at um, the topics, the most searched topics related to um, the top candidates um, in France, not only Macron and Le Pen, but also the other candidates. And it was striking how these uh, topics and the search interest for these topics changed over time. Um, you can also see that on google.com slash trends. It's a public tool. Um, everyone can use that and um, play around with it. So Google Trends can also be um, useful for detecting misinformation. This is an example from my colleague in Poland who um, simply typed in Poland in the search bar uh, on top of the Google Trends page. Um, and what was striking for her that in the related search bar, um, in the related search box below, there were um, words popping up that were related to apparently uh, a, a, an upcoming epidemia or a flu that um, was apparently very severe. So she looked on the bigger online news sites. She couldn't find any headline or any story about that. 
and then figured out that um, she should take these terms that were put, uh, popping up in the related search box and compare the, uh, those terms. And she found out that um, on Facebook, in um, closed Facebook groups, there, was, um, there were several news articles about that epidemia um, spreading across Poland, apparently, um, that went viral. So Google Trends, and especially the related search terms, can be a very helpful um, detection uh, or detection tool for, for misinformation. Um, again, it's a public tool, so whatever you type in, you will see the related um, searches and the related topics that might give you a hint of what people are searching for. Of course, we remember um, last Saturday uh, when everyone was uh, talking uh, about the Macron leaks, um, that was also something that was um, popping up and uh, showed increased search interest on the Google Trends site. So that was just a really quick introduction to the Google News Lab. Um, G.co slash News Lab is the website. Um, we work very closely with um, fact-checking organizations like First Draft since the beginning, since 2015. Um, and we want to give access to the tools that can be helpful and can be very easily used by journalists and by everyone else. Um, and with that, I'm going to hand over to Claire and switch the presentations. Uh, is it? Yeah. Great. Thank you very much, Isa. Uh, there are some seats at the front for people who want to come forward. Um, it seems a shame that you're all standing there. Uh, so thanks very much for having me. Uh, it's great to be here. This is my first Republica. I don't think it will be my last. Uh, I'm actually based in New York, although as I said this morning, I've slept in my New York bed 15 nights since the 1st of January. A lot of people want to talk about misinformation. Uh, but it's a good thing. When the nonprofit that you run co-aligns with the thing that everybody wants to talk about, you just keep getting on planes. So if you don't know about First Draft News, we were founded two years ago purely to just build a website where we built resources to help journalists and consumers who wanted to have more information about how to verify the material they were finding online. We built this website and we were this very niche nonprofit. Um, if you haven't seen the site, under the resources tab, we have a number of different short videos, interactives, tests, uh, case studies, handbooks, and uh, the top resources have been translated into French, German, Arabic, and Spanish. So uh, for the resources that are most popular globally, we have actually got them in German. Uh, I apologize for not speaking German. The joke I made earlier is still true. I'm still British, and British people, we can't speak any other languages, and it's very embarrassing. So uh, who in here is a journalist? Great. Uh, this was actually from the Westminster Bridge attack recently when a BBC correspondent confirmed from multiple sources that a name that was circulating amongst journalists was the incorrect name of the person. He was actually in prison. That could have been fact-checked pretty quickly. And I love this, this uh, tweet to at BBC Domsey. Dear media outlets desperate to break news, we the public never actually remember or care who told us first. Uh, and I sort of feel like we should pin that up in every newsroom around the world and say, we keep making mistakes because we're rushing, and I understand why. We're more competitive than ever, but we are at a time when we cannot make mistakes. <laughs> we cannot make mistakes because Donald Trump will call us out on them, uh, so we can't. Now, um, I don't know how many of you have seen this New York Times video about verifying the Syrian chemical weapons attack. 
Yeah, I think I'm just going to just play a bit of it because this, for me, encapsulates everything I want to talk about here, which is verification is a process. People think there's this machine that you can push videos or images in and it will come out with a big green tick or a big red cross. The truth is, mostly, we can't be 100% certain, which is why, as newsrooms, we say before broadcast, this cannot be independently verified. We say this because the lawyers tell us to say it. It's actually creating real problems with the audience who say, why are they running stuff if they haven't verified it? But that's because we're not being as truthful as we should be with the audience to say, we feel 100% confident about the source and the location. We're not 100% certain that it was actually captured today. But here's the video of the content, if we make that decision. So instead, we pretend that verification is this obvious thing. But this is work done by a friend and colleague of mine, Maliki Brown, on the recent chemical weapons attack, and it brings together a lot of the issues I'm going to talk about. The U.S. blames Syria for a chemical weapons attack on the town of Khan Sheikhoun. But Syria and its main partner, Russia, are pushing back. It's not clear whether it happened or not, because how can you verify a video? Well, here's how. Let's take a look at videos, satellite photos and open source material of that day. They show that Assad and Russia are telling a story that contradicts the facts. So what happens is the... The Syrian attack in the same area was at uh, around noon, between 11.30 to 12. Assad and Russia appear to be distorting the facts with this time frame. Because evidence shows the attack happened hours earlier. Now, this footage doesn't show the chemical strike itself, but we believe it does show conventional strikes that occurred during the same bombing run. So what's critical here is the timing. We know it's Khan Sheikhoun because the position of minarets and other points in the video match satellite imagery of the town. This tells us the camera was in a northerly position looking south. The sunrise hitting the minarets shows the attack happened in the early morning. And the US military tracked Syrian aircraft to Khan Sheikhoun around this time. The man who filmed the video backed this up as did a second activist who sent us footage of the attack. This timing matches Facebook posts by the cameraman and other local sources reporting the airstrikes. Doctors in the area use WhatsApp to coordinate services. Soon after the bombing, they started to report casualties who had been exposed to a chemical agent. They started calling for help with a growing number of victims. We spoke with one doctor who received patients at a hospital 60 kilometers away. We started receiving our patients closer to 8.30. The distance between the hospital I was in and the site of attack is about a 45-minute drive. We're having to turn it away. So the evidence shows the chemical attack happened well before Assad and Russia claim. We don't know where we're going to send these patients now. In this... 
Okay, so you can actually search for this and watch the whole thing, but the other reason that I think this video is so useful is it shows the combination of forensic techniques with on-the-ground connections and communities that have been built. So the use of WhatsApp there is critical to verification. Increasingly, in different parts of the world, the best eyewitness footage, the best sources are actually circulating information on WhatsApp or in Asia, a number of different messaging apps, whether it's Line, Talk, Viber. And I think as journalists, we've kind of got reliant, particularly in the US on Twitter, because it's open and it's easy to search. Most of this stuff also appears on Facebook. That video of Hillary Clinton fainting on 9-11 sat on Facebook for three hours until this guy was like, why is nobody interested? And he tweeted it and immediately journalists were on it all journalists were on it at the same time because they all have access to data miner. But actually, if we're really interested in these types of topics, the research that we need to do involves getting into these communities. Traditional journalism involves uh, making contacts. In Yemen, almost everything circulates on WhatsApp, and then somebody will finally upload it to YouTube or Twitter. But from a verification perspective, that means that the source is almost always wrong because the person who uploaded it wasn't the person who created it. So... I'm going to go through the different um, elements, but just very quickly, what news event is this image from? Pub quiz, some of you have got beers. (laughs) Which one? No. 2011, my accent. The London riots. Seems like forever ago. So, and the reason I put this up here is because with verification, almost entirely, if it looks too good to be true, it is. But this actually is an image that was taken from that moment. What are some of the clues from that photo that could help us? Signs, yes. So almost entirely when you're looking at uh, videos or images, you are going to have signs, whether they're shop signs, whether they're telephone numbers on the side of cop cars. It doesn't matter. You will have signage. Um, Any Brits in the room will know that that's not a British-looking road sign, which is why it threw a lot of people off. But actually, it's from Croydon in South London that has a tram system. And this was as tram lines. But it does look like an American sign. And here, if you've got good eyes, it says London piercings. So almost, when, and the reason that I love verification, I love teaching it, I love working with students on it, because you essentially have to become Sherlock Holmes. And the thing is, with anything that you're looking at, whether it's a video, what's the dialect? Not just they're speaking Arabic. What type of dialect are you hearing? What clothing are people wearing? How many eyelets are in the policeman's boots? Because if they're given out, there will be a certain number of eyelets in a policeman's boot. So whatever verification work you're doing, yes, there are tools that I'll show you now to learn, but really it's about this. And I can train 25 journalists, and there'll be one person in the back who's just this weirdo who's like, boom, 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 like just gets it all. Like, so there is a thing that certain people have these brains which make them able to get these connections. We can all do it, but there are certain people with certain brains. So verification as process. We talk at First Draft about a checklist, which for any video or image you find, you really need to be working through the provenance. Are you looking at the original piece of content? Who captured the content? Not who uploaded it, who captured it? When was the content captured? Not when was it uploaded, when was it captured? Location, can you independently verify where it was captured on using satellite imagery or street view? And finally, motivation, 
Why was the content captured? As journalists, we often think of this material as neutral. I did some research in 2014. We were using, I say we collectively, a lot of ISIS material in 2014, because at the time, that black flag just looked like a Syrian activist group, and we were just using YouTube footage because we could. Uh, actually, I also used to work for UNHCR and train UNHCR staff members to use these. UNHCR material wasn't unbiased. <laughs> We would create particular videos about refugees. So the motivation is really important. I hate the term citizen journalist. It's very rarely that you just have an accidental eyewitness. Sometimes they are actually protesters. Sometimes they actually work for an NGO. Um, but the motivation is critical and we often forget it. So provenance. Our biggest problem in this world is scraping which is downloading from one platform and re-uploading to another platform. As I just talked about with Yemen, that's one of your issues, that often what you're looking at is not the original piece of content. And I think you all know this, I hope you do, but very quickly, this is a 20-minute video. 20 minutes, 20 seconds. journalists to download that Chrome extension, we'd be in a lot less of a problematic space. So there, so there are different Chrome extensions that you can just add on. It's now a standard Chrome feature, I believe, that you just right-click any image and well it allows done, you to search it on Google That was images. probably ESA. <laughs> Thanks, ESA. So now, um, now it would be five seconds, I guess. Oh, even more. Yeah, exactly. Um, also, I particularly like this one because it um, searches multiple engines. So um, if you're doing anything in kind of Russia or Turkey, Yandex is a search, a search engine that you should use. And also I like to check both Google and TinEye because you can get different results on both of them. So whilst that is exciting, I also recommend doing a, a deeper dive. Oh, people with their phones out. <laughs> Uh, all, all of this is on the First Draft News website. Um, so, for example, the Tianjin explosion in China, the amount of scrapes going on there was just eye-watering. And, in fact, this guy, um, this was just me searching the day, um, but just putting in Tianjin site, colon, youtube.com, there are just hundreds and hundreds of scrapes of that incredible footage. Um, but this, this is, I like... I do not own this video. The copyright belongs to whoever shot and uploaded this video to Weibo. A collection of videos near the scene is available. What he's also, he's still monetizing it. The reason that scraping is such a problem, this is a YouTube issue, I know you don't work for YouTube, but people during breaking news events will download the footage, upload it to their own accounts, and ticks the box that says, I want to monetize this. So you have eight-year-old boys in Portugal monetizing breaking news footage. So that's why we have so many scrapes, because there's kind of a financial incentive to do that. Um, here's just an example from the other day from South Africa. Um, this, the quality of the video is very low. Now the quality of phones is so high, if you see anything that's starting to look like it's been degraded, that's, it will have been a copy and a scrape. But you can also actually look for um, the unique identifier on YouTube or Instagram um, and Facebook. Within the URL, you'll see this num like letters and numbers, and they are um, specific to that piece of content. You can then basically search online 
and see where that piece of content has moved. So here was an example from Brussels, um, um, and, it, and it comes up and shows you where it's, where it's uh, gone around. Um, the other thing, well, I'll get to that in a second. Um, sorry, this was the example. Video Vault is a very uh, useful tool. Also, think about archiving. So often in breaking news events, this stuff comes down pretty quickly. So you need to think through archiving and preservation in your newsrooms. We're really, really bad at that. And in fact, I remember, do you remember when those two journalists were killed in the US in August 2015 and the guy shot them live on air? I knew a number of journalists who said, I kept watching that on loop because I knew if I closed down my browser, it would disappear. And we didn't have a way of archiving that footage online. So newsrooms should be much better about thinking about this. But it's bravenewtech.org, and it allows you to put in a YouTube clip, and it will send it to you. You can do it securely by PGP. But it also allows you to get screen grabs. There isn't a reverse video search like there's a reverse image search. But what you can do is take a screen grab from a video and then run a reverse image search against that. So you can use this to basically find parts of the video that you think are particularly distinctive. And Google image reverse search works really well in that context. It's pretty uh, astonishing. And I just talked about Instagram. Similarly with Instagram here in the middle of the URL, you have a unique identifier, which again, you can put into Google and see whether, where that Instagram photo has moved and become embedded. So this attempt to try and find the first version of a video or image is the thing that you really want to do when you're thinking about provenance. Same way, you can Google that. Now, I am just gonna talk, I wonder if I can open this up. The man said, is there web? And I said, no. But I'm just gonna, oh, never mind. He did ask me. Okay, so I'm just gonna say this publicly. Don't tweet this. So the best verification tool has been built by a private detective in the US. And if you go to his website, actually do it on your phones now, inteltechniques.com, it's a terrible looking website with a man with no head. But it is the best space for doing verification. And underneath his tool section, you've got all of these different verification type tools that you can use. And one of them is reverse video search tools, which works as I just said. It's not a specific reverse video search, but it allows you to put in live leak videos, Instagram videos, RIP Vine, Facebook, Vimeo, YouTube, by putting in the unique identifier and then running um, checks against that. So I'm going to come back to this tool a few times because its ability to do email address search, username searches, Facebook searches, it will blow your mind, slash terrify you, slash if you're into stalking ex-partners, make you very excited. <laughs> But we're in Germany, and you are really good at not giving away private information. The Americans, terrible, which makes verification much easier. It's harder to verify in Germany because you understand privacy. And lastly, um, is it true? So isittrue.com was built by Photoshop guys. It's free. It's not perfect, but it's a start. It allows you to upload a photo. Remember, it has to be the original photo because the social networks strip out all metadata. So if you find anything on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, it's pretty useless for doing any original verification because they've ripped out the metadata. If you are working with a source, please ask them to send it to you. Here is a, we're working on a project in the US called Documenting Hate. So here is uh, not a great country to be showing this picture, um, but this is now appearing in large numbers uh, across the US by actually submitting, um, adding, adding in the, um, uploading the photo, 
It will say here, our forensic test suggests this file has been resaved since initial capture. Because this file is not a camera original, it is possible that it was modified. That was simply somebody emailing it to me, me downloading it, and then re-uploading it to Is It True? So it looks at compression, file size. It looks at basic, has there been some Photoshop tampering? Um, so again, these are free tools so anybody can access them. Okay, secondly, source. Who captured the content? As just discussed, custom person search tools are very useful if somebody is not German. You can, put, you can do populate all and it will search all of these different search tools in one, in one shout, which is very good. Um, you can also do custom email search tools. Remember, when you're looking up somebody, you really want their username, preferably their email address because you want something that's unique to them. Uh, John Smith or even Claire Wardle, I'm also a beauty queen in Seattle. But look at this. I am a big fan of using the Pipple API. This is my actual New York address. This is the address I used to live in Philadelphia. It has so much information about me, and I'm very careful about what I put online. So I would also recommend that you also search yourself uh, and look at what's available online about you. Because uh, the, the thin line here is, if you're trying to do verification, you hope that everybody puts all their information out there. For you yourself, you want nobody to know anything about you. Um, Follow.me, a very basic but useful tool. It looks at somebody's Twitter activity. So we're now in an age of bots. This is Joe Galvin from Storyful, thus proving that Joe sleeps. Because it tells you when that person tweets. So again, as a source, if you're trying to very quickly get a sense of somebody, as bots have become a lot more sophisticated, they now inhabit actual accounts, um, it can be harder uh, to look at. Also, side note, when we looked at the Macron leak stuff, the level of automation is unbelievable. And why Twitter can't just... Well, if they did get rid of all the bots, they'd have no users left. But it is shocking. There are people tweeting so often there's no way they could be anything other than a bot. Um, it makes me angry. Okay, finally, uh, Facebook, as we know, an incredible resource, very difficult to get into and do searches with. Um, there's an element of this on that Intel techniques I told you about. But if you go here... You, you put somebody's username in from their Facebook page, and everybody has got a unique Facebook ID. You can then populate that, and it will tell you what photos that person has tagged, has tagged in, what they've commented on. There's a whole host of other things that you can do. Um, that If you're trying to look into somebody as a source, are they trustworthy? Um, Facebook can be a place that people are just not careful about, and you can find all sorts of information about that. I can see you all looking very uncomfortable, um, but this is journalism. Uh, and finally, who is... Which, so now people understand domain registration because of the Macedonian teenagers. Um, but one top tip, when you're looking at somebody's website, often people will spend the extra $20 to cover up their identity. So clairewardle.com, you can't find any information about me because I've paid an extra $20. Here's a slightly embarrassing example. So we're firstdraftnews.com. We also bought firstdraft.news. We didn't bother covering up our privacy because that website doesn't actually exist. But here is my sister's name, our mum's bed and breakfast in West Wales, our telephone number and email address. So a really good way of when you're trying to find this information about somebody is try another domain, connect it with another, you know, .com, .co, .co, um, .biz. And here's one of the famous imposter sites, abcnews.com.co. Um, this, was, this has actually been created by the satirist Paul Horner, so of course calls himself Horner Paul, 
uh, from Phoenix, etc., etc. But just quickly, the only domain registration that counts is this, whois.ican.org. Um, but actually, if you search for abcnews.com.co, it doesn't come up on ICANN.org. It only comes up on one of these dodgy Whois sites, thus proving that you have to also look at some of the, the dodgy Whois sites if you're looking at dodgy fake news sites. Okay, finally... Um, Looking at this kind of uh, domain registration information can be helpful. This was from Storyful's investigation of Dylan, Dylan Roof, who in South Carolina went and um, shot many people in a church. Um, by going to his website, they could see that it was actually updated shortly. Um, the last, he last updated at 4.44 p.m., and the homepage was updated shorted afterwards at 5.12, just hours before the Charleston shooting took place. So even whatever you're doing, having access to those kind of website forensic tools gives you a sense of uh, a whole host of other information. And if you haven't used CloneZone, CloneZone is a site that allows you to change websites. So if you work for a website, go to CloneZone after this, uh, and you can go in and change the headline and the images, do a screenshot... It's very simple, but it's very powerful. And somebody used it to create a fake New York Times. Now the New York Times has got a cease and desist order on it. Um, but um, if you go into the developer source code for something like this, you can actually get a lot of clues uh, about a whole host of things. And this became useful in the Macron leaks over the weekend. Um, but actually in the source code, it came up and you could see... Sorry, it's the next slide. Clone zone in the source developer code. So even those of you who are sitting here thinking, I'm, not, I'm certainly not a techie, but there's a number of ways you just have to use, you know, understand these basic tools for doing some forensic analysis when you're looking at this sort of uh, material. So finally, date. When was the content captured? You saw on Maliki's video him looking at Facebook dates. The problem is that the social networks think about date stamps differently. So the Twitter stamp on your Twitter account is connected to your Twitter settings. So if I'm here and not in New York, my Twitter settings are actually New York. Facebook is connected to my computer, which last night I changed to Berlin time for my overall clock. That's what Facebook uses. YouTube and Instagram both use Pacific Standard Time. So in the Ghouta chemical weapons attacks in August 2013, actually 2 a.m. in Syria was the day before in Silicon Valley. And Putin actually came out and said, this stuff is false because the date is wrong. Putin not understanding the way that date stamps work on YouTube. So it's a pain that there's not consistency across the platforms, but it's important to bear in mind how date stamps work. This is the, the plane spotter who took the photo of MH17. He was a 15-year-old who every day goes to Schiphol Airport and takes photos of planes. So when MH17 went down, he went back through his camera and realized he had a picture of the plane. Uh, a side note... He, knowing that newsrooms don't credit users, added this credit himself <laughs> with the ugliest font imaginable. And the BBC actually used this, but they photoshopped out his credit and then put it in here but spelt his name wrong, thus creating Tom and all of his friends to get very angry at the BBC. Anyway, so this picture was used by many different people. And the, the timestamp would suggest, yes, that's the time that MH17 was taking off. There's a tool called Wolfram Alpha, which is a knowledge engine, which can be used for many reasons, but it actually is very helpful to say what, what was the weather like in a particular location. So if I say, what was the weather like in Amsterdam on Thursday, July 17th, 2014? This is a classic Northern European day, 
Rain, fog, overcast, cloudy, partly cloudy, few clouds, clear. So that doesn't actually give us uh, much help. But at the top, it says cloud cover, which is quite useful because as we know there's no clouds in that picture. When it took off at 11.31, that's when we seem to have the lowest level of cloud cover. So again, none of these things are ever absolute, but they are clues that you are adding to your investigation board to say, I'm starting to feel a little bit more confident. Also, uh, so what percentage of content is actually geolocated on social networks? Tiny, about 2%. The best is Instagram, because most people are too stupid to turn off location. Note to self, please turn off your location. You never, never, never need to have your location, as I'll show you in a second, on any of your photos. But uh, YouTube, a small amount of geolocated YouTube videos is on geosearchtool.com. That's a useful way of just cross-referencing weather in a particular location on a particular date. So I actually use that tool for weather analysis. And EXIF data, hopefully many of you know, is the metadata in a photo. It's ripped out of all social networks apart from Flickr. Unfortunately, nobody uses Flickr anymore. Uh, but here's an example from the Boston Marathon where it actually tells you the date that it was taken on and also the date it was posted to Flickr, that difference between when it was created versus when it was uploaded. Um, but again, if you can ever talk to a source and ask them to send you information, the actual photograph, you can do this analysis uh, using a tool such as Jeffrey's Exif Viewer. So if any of you here are developers, please, can you build us a proper set of verification tools that are not just weird and created by people called Jeffrey? I've been teaching this stuff since 2009, and the tools have not changed, and it's depressing. But in terms of location, finally, this is from Andy Carvin. This is geotagged to Yemen. It used to be that on Twitter, it was actually connected to the GPS of your phone. That is no longer the case. Twitter tells you where you are, but you can override it on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. It is pointless, almost, location. It's a, a nudge to something, but it's not absolutely true. And in fact, here, geolocation search tools would throw this up as Yemen. What is this photo here? Pub quiz number two, news nerds. No. Who said Iraq? Yes, road to Basra, road to hell. Um, so, so the question here is, these clever geolocation tools would throw this up. This tweet was sent from Yemen, but this photo wasn't. So it's a constant reminder of the, you know, when we have to think about what's geolocated. This is my front room in New York. I was not in Yemen. But just to remind you, it really is very easy to say that you are anywhere in the world at any given time. This, I'm sure you know the example, but it's still my favorite. Who is this person here? John McAfee, horrific security bug on your computer. He's on the run. Vice says, we found you. Can we come and do an interview? Sure, just don't tell anybody where I am. Not a problem. So they go and interview him. This guy takes a photo with his iPhone using Jeffrey's, and then publishes it on Vice. Uh, Jeffrey's exit viewer, run it through. Very clearly that it was taken on an Apple iPhone 4S. Makes sense. It was a mobile phone. It was a few years ago. Latitude, longitude, so specifically exact that we know that not only is he in Guatemala, but we know that he's right next to that swimming pool. <laughs> Which is why, A, please turn your location off as journalists. B, always try and get an original photo because you can do an awful lot with the EXIF data and it can be amazing. Um, how are we doing for time? Okay, last thing and then we'll stop. This was a photo that emerged from iDomini last year during the refugee crisis there. Um, you don't have laptops in front of you, but you could do this quite shortly. 
Tell me all the clues in that photo that we could use for verification purposes. Yes. What country is that from? Does it make sense? Yes. So Greece, Macedonia. What else? What about the train? Yes. Train markings. You might not be able to see, but there's actually a number of the train at the front. You can Google that number. You can Google that number and get the specific movements of that train. What else? Weather. Weather. Excellent. Cloudy. Northern European. Well, it should, it should be it's Macedonia. Clothes. Yes. Is this regimented? Is he actually from Macedonia or from Greece? This will help us as well. Uh, I, I suspect they might be sunglasses that are given out, uh, but I'm not sure. Uh, but yes, absolutely. Lots of clues with the policeman. Oh. Um... <laughs> We're not quite there yet. I mean, Silicon Valley is, but yeah, they're searching. Um, you've been watching CSI, but no, you're right. We are not going to be very far away from that. That's why it's terrifying. Also, when, is this live streamed? I feel like I've already had a beer. When Facebook tells us that they can't match the refugee selfie in Germany across the platform, yet they can recognize, like, my children, that's when I worry. Anyway, what else? Yes, what about the train tracks? Yes, and the reason this is so great is because you can see two of the tracks coming together. So that's an actual, like, a great clue where that is. What else? Yes, our tents always there in satellite imagery. I'll show you. What else? You're doing ever so well. Absolutely. So the poles here, the, the, the fact that they're not quite um, vertically aligned, um, also fencing, things that you don't think are going to move are your friends. So there's a whole host of clues here that are actually, from just an Instagram photo, there's a massive amount of clues that you can get. And from actually using Google Earth and going over the top of iDomini, it's quite clear where the train tracks are, where these train tracks converge, all of the clues that you've just come up with, which allows you very quickly to actually come up with this lat long and the street view was taken from September 2011, but you can actually see exactly the same. The, the tents aren't there, but the uprights are there, everything else is there. Uh, and that, when you're able to do that, there's a real sense of achievement. And if any of you have looked at Bellingcat's work, they are absolute experts in this level of kind of geolocation. In fact, when that MH17 book missile launcher went through Ukraine, in Russia, lots of people have dash cams on their cars because they're worried about insurance if somebody hits them. But that meant they had lots and lots of YouTube footage that they used volunteers to go through, and they were able to geolocate the book missile launcher in about 12 different places as it traveled through the countryside. It's unbelievable. So this is the satellite imagery on Google Earth. There's a little clock at the top, and you can scroll back to look at archive footage. So this is iDomini, no tents, tents, no tents, tents. The tents are no longer there. So sometimes um, Amnesty will use this kind of satellite imagery, and you can buy satellite imagery of much more recent um, footage, and you can look at war uh, graves, and Amnesty has done some pretty incredible work going back over time. <laughs> so just some other maps. Wikimapia is very useful. There are layers specifically around military or health or schools. So again, if you're doing work somewhere like Syria, it can make a big difference. Uh, if you're doing anything in Korea, it's Naver, Nature. Naver is much more popular than Google in Korea, and so you have to use Naver maps. 
Um, if you're doing anything in Russia or Turkey, use Yandex. And of course, if you're doing anything in China, like Beidou. So knowing these different tools in different countries uh, is very useful. Now, if you loved this, and you're like, I really want to go home tonight and practice, uh, we actually have a test your verification skills with our geolocation challenge interactive. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's games. And there's also an observation test, which journalists get very competitive over, and you can then share your score online. Um, so motivation, why was the content captured? You know this, whether somebody actually works for you in HR or they're an off-duty journalist. Please remember these different um, checks. And we have photo and video checklists that go through those five different questions and then actually helps you from a color-coded way say, how confident am I for these five tests? So particularly working in newsrooms, you might be really good at this. Your editor probably isn't. Give this to your editor and say, please ask me how confident I am when I give you a piece of content. Uh, so we're actually not running material before we're confident. And before Google Chrome extensions were sexy, I actually turned our checklist into a Chrome extension called News Check. So if you're in a newsroom or a journalism school and you want people to practice, it basically takes those checks and you can just put it on your Chrome bar and it reminds you to walk through um, all those different checks. Um, but thank you very much. I will answer any questions that you might have because I'm aware that that was a whistle-stop tour. Gibt es Fragen? Thanks for the good talk. Uh, I wonder if there is also a tool where you can check when a web page is set up. When it's set up? Yeah. Yeah, so when you do that domain registration check, it actually tells you when the domain was first registered. Also, if you're trying to get somebody's domain, it tells you when it will be registered until, and it tells you the last time it was modified, which is what I was showing you about Dylan Roof. But with the Macedonian teenagers you can see, hang on, this website was created two weeks ago. That's probably not an established news brand. So it's a really useful tool. Thank you for asking the question. Um, do you get uh, requested by governmental services um, who are maybe not able to do this kind of thing on their own if they're setting up reports for the UN or something? Um, not yet. I mean, in our partner network, we have people from Amnesty and Witness who do a lot of human rights work. We haven't been asked by governments. I'm more worried about insurance companies because this kind of stuff is actually tell me this person who's claiming disability, tell me if they were on holiday last week. So these tools are, can be, uh, there's a fine line and I'm always very aware of that line. Any more questions? Have you been involved in text verification, kind of tracking text sets or text snippets um, online? Yes, so um, we are, I'm just, I feel like I'm saying things I shouldn't. We are currently working on the UK election, and I think the next wave, I feel like verification, there's now more of an understanding. The next wave of what we'll need to be able to do in newsrooms is computational mapping of text, so collecting 
like, you know, text from Facebook pages, which allows us to search for keywords and understand what's happening there, or huge uh, kind of text archives. You know, Panama Papers, ICIJ said, well, how, do, how does artificial intelligence help us see patterns in documents? So I think the next wave is, is us as a news industry taking computational methodology to find patterns, do deep digging, map fake news ecosystems, that for me is the next wave. And this is all fine, but for me, this feels like misinformation. Now it's about disinformation and it's about systematic campaigns that are being driven by computation and automation. So we, on the other side, need to use those same tools to fight it. So, yeah. And what about pictures that have been photoshopped or a picture that has been combined out of two photos? Yes, so... Um, One of the biggest issues, let me just unhide some of this stuff. I had these examples. I was aware we would run out of time. Um, is, is in terms of the Photoshopping type stuff, is you know, looking for layers, et cetera, et cetera. But most of the time, you don't really need that level of forensic analysis. A lot of it is just looking for patterns. Um, it's disappeared. Um, but things like compression, looking at photo sizes, and has that been changed? Does it make sense? And you can tell on Facebook often, if you, if you click on the timestamp on Facebook and it opens it up as an actual post, and the photo then becomes small in the big black oblong, that's you know, the biggest um, check that something's happened. Actually looking for um, Photoshop, like doing deep dives into that. Uh, oh, thanks, sir. So this is, of course, the famous North Korean example. Most Photoshops are really bad. <laughs> Um, so here, it's just the, the same size wave, the way the same pattern was repeated again and again. Or uh, this one here of the... You've probably seen... Yeah, the famous one. Um, and this was because the same smoke um, appeared. Um, but things like looking at shadows, um, so the famous eagle steals the baby. If you've got blue sky, be really wary because it makes it much easier to Photoshop. So um, I feel like I'm not giving you a good answer. Uh, I think and if you are a Photoshop expert, there's a whole host of things you can, you can look at in terms of the actual picture. Uh, most of the stuff on social ends up being not that sophisticated. Um, and of course, you're, you're then working with an image that has been compressed and it's difficult to see. The, the biggest issue with social media stuff is the, the image you're looking at is almost worthless. So you end up having to rely on these kind of clues because it's been ripped of metadata, compressed and made like a very small um, data file. Hi. Um, I wanted to know, like, from your experience, uh, what are the areas of reporting, like, or the kinds of stories that we mess up the most? So, like, if I'm working on something, then, like, you know, th that I should think, well, wait, wait a second, this is, this is the type of thing where people make mistakes. Uh, it's almost always breaking news, and it's almost always old footage recirculating. It's very rarely the kind of sophisticated hoaxes that we might talk about in training sessions. It's almost always in an earthquake. And it's, and it's not that the users are trying to hoax us. They do a search for New Zealand earthquake. Google serves up New Zealand earthquake material. And the person goes, oh, my God, from today, that's terrible. And then reshares it on Twitter. So it's mostly um, that that we need to be warier of. And even silly things like the Brussels, Brussels airport example, um, that people, you know, CCTV footage never comes out immediately. So when somebody circulates, oh my God, CCTV footage from inside the airport, we should immediately just say there's absolutely no way that that would have come this quickly. But instead we're like, oh, great imagery. We just should put massive signs up saying breathe, and we don't because we watch each other. 
Um, I mean, this, this example here from Election Land, uh, this was, again, a composite of, if you just search for, uh, on Google, or Bing, um, for um, immigration arrest, this comes up on Wikimedia. This was actually from uh, March, the primary in Arizona, and somebody just put these two images together very easily on Photoshop. Now, we could have done really sophisticated analysis, but if we'd engaged our brains, we would have said, nobody stands looking at their phone when somebody's being arrested. So a lot of this is... is <laughs> maybe Americans. Um, <laughs> but, but that kind of... Most of this stuff can be debunked by just engaging our brains, and I think instead we, we just get caught up in the moment. Um, so this is, this is another one that I think is worth... <laughs> Like composite images, um, again, too good to be true, but this is actually a, a storm cloud in Iowa from 2012, uh, earlier in the year, and then, of course, this was Hurricane Sandy. But again, this takes two seconds. That's the power of reverse image searches. You can actually find the composite part of it. So again, going back to the disinformation, that's what really worries me. I can't believe that we're still having to talk about these things. We should just have eliminated them in newsrooms. And recently, during the Aleppo um, crisis, we retweeted that video that I showed you that I'm sort of embarrassed about, and it got 3,000 retweets with journalists being like, oh, reverse image search, what a magic tool. And I was like, how have we got to the point where not everybody knows about it, but they don't? Um, so we just, we just need to just make sure that everybody does and move on with the more worrying stuff from the Kremlin. Um, you said before that, that the next level uh, that you need to take, the next step is to take uh, compu uh, computational analysis in, into an analog networks of, of information today is the the bigger part of the misinformation and disinformation is is that um, organizationally planted botnets that are run by specific organizations which have an origin or is it people looking for these things trying to share things to perpetuate their their own perception of reality, whether it's right or wrong. What's, what's more dangerous? Is it equally dangerous? Yeah, so um, um, I talk a lot, quite a lot about all of this, and my issue is that we need to be distinctive about misinformation and disinformation, and we need to think about the motivations. For misinformation, it's either poor journalism, or it's users themselves just sharing without thinking, all the way through to troll factories and bot networks. I think what we saw a lot of in France was actually loosely connected individuals in the UK and the US using collaborative platforms like Dropbox, Google Forms, Google Docs, Discord, which is like Slack, using those tools to basically connect with one another to have systematic, systematic attempts to Uh, spread disinformation. So I think we have to recognize that, yes, there are bot networks, but I'm also concerned about humans who are kind of collectively working together to try and um, manipulate public opinion. And I think in Europe, we just, we've not wanted to see it. And actually, there's more of that. And one thing I'd say, when Facebook put out that paper two weeks ago by their security team, recognizing that state actors are using their platforms for disinformation, I was like, hallelujah. Stop saying that this is just about Macedonian teenagers. There are other significant factors here that we need to be aware of. And if we're going to find solutions, we need to understand the complexity, first of all.
Today you've shown us a lot of uh, fascinating tools, and thank you for that. Uh, what's your personal stance towards, uh, you know, like the verification versus privacy issue, starting from the fact that, okay, we can find private details of uh, people that were not accurate enough and not posting them online, and a lot of journalists would approach them, you know, like, hey, we would like to have your eyewitness account, or please tell us if you filmed the video, and up to the point where almost every video which is posted, breaking news video which is posted on Twitter or Instagram gets like 20 comments, I'm contacting you from caterers, storyful, whatever, yep. please uh, give us right to your footage. Yep. Um, so, what I wished we had was everybody who used the internet understood its power. So we built a verification course and showed it to our mum. And mum watched it and then said, I just need to shut down everything that I ever do on the web. Like she didn't learn anything about verification. She learned how exposed she was. And so what I would prefer is that we all recognize that. I mean, I am very careful about what I post. All my settings are the highest that they possibly can be. And even I feel exposed, but I'm making a conscious decision when I decide to post anything in particular. Because then if I was an eyewitness and some terrible thing happened on my way to the airport tonight, I would specifically know to reach out to journalists, probably Probably not publicly, and I would make it clear, here's the original image, this is who I am, this is how you can check who I am. And so Witness, who are a human rights organization, have built an app that if you're an activist, you can prove who you are in a safe, encrypted way. That's how we should be doing it, as opposed to all mining social networks for this material, because users don't understand, and we hope that they'll give us permission and we won't have to pay. Let's be honest. I mean, the way journalists will say, I'll go to prison for a source, they will treat an eyewitness like crap. You know, when you see people chasing after, like, vultures during a breaking news event, stealing people's content, not paying for it, syndicating, making profit off it, what, I mean, not Germany, but everybody else, um, it's a real issue, and it's partly because users... I mean, I'll do a talk like this to 500 students and say, if I take an Instagram image of you now, who owns that image? And they'll go, Instagram. I'm like, no, I own it. It's my copyright. And even if I post it to Instagram, nobody else can take it without my permission. They're like, oh, I didn't know that. So we have a real problem with users, audiences, real people, not understanding the law, not understanding their rights, which is allowing us, us, the news industry, to take advantage. So to get back to your original question, I would prefer that we were much more aware of privacy. And if we did have good information to give to newsrooms, we would have channels to do it that were encrypted, and actually source protection in this world is something we really need to think about. Last thing, the weekend of the Trump executive order, you saw all of these newsrooms on Twitter saying, please tell us about your experiences in America today. Like, are you kidding? Like, we now live in America in a way that we have to protect sources in America in the same way as we have to protect them from Syria. And actually, the tools themselves haven't been designed. We're getting better with signal and encryption on disappearing messenger apps, but we need to be much better at that. So huge education campaigns are needed. People themselves need to understand their rights. And as newsrooms elsewhere in the world, we need to be much more aware of privacy and consent, which you are here and everybody else isn't. Thank you.